You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Tabitha Forney on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called Paper Airplanes. And I'll, I'll tell you what, guys, this is one of the most impactful books that I've read in quite a while. Um, and and hopefully we're going to hear the stories behind this book, and I think it's going to make it that much more impactful. I love the book. I'm recommending it to everyone, and I'm super excited to have Tabitha with me to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Tabitha. Thank you, Hank. I appreciate that so much. You're and I'm so welcome. Um, Tabitha, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? That is a very good question. I, I don't have a specific memory. I just always loved books. As a child, I couldn't get enough of them. I would hide to read them. I would, you know, um, sneak them at the dinner table. I was just always reading and, you know, my parents were not always okay with it, depending on what else was going on. But, um, and I had a stepfather who didn't really, he thought reading and education was kind of useless. So um, I always loved reading them and, and I would just get lost in these worlds, which, you know, took me away to a place that was better than my own childhood. And, but I never really thought I could be a writer. I never felt empowered as a child. Um, it took me a long time to get there. And I think a lot of us have this issue, you know, like who am I to call myself a writer and what a difficult career path that would be. So it took me a while to get to that part where I could think of myself as a writer. Um, but yeah, once I did, once I got connected with the right people and, and just started surrounding myself with other writers. Um, slowly, it just started to take shape in my mind. So, uh, Tabitha, it sounds to me like you uh, had one of those experiences that that so many people do. That uh, you there's the desire in you. You have stories that you want to share, or or even maybe not specific stories that need to get out, but just this this desire, this pull that, that wants to have your voice heard in, in some, in some way. Um, and, you know, I've met a very few people that, you know, have this story of saying, um, you know, I knew I always wanted to be a writer and I had this singular pursuit that everything I did was, um, was to fuel that desire to put me closer to becoming a published writer. Um, and that's only been a handful of people that I've met over these 1150 some odd shows um, that we've done. But more times than not, uh, it, it is the fact that I know I want to do this, but I don't have any idea how it's going to come to pass. Therefore, I'm going to, you know, just pursue life and I'm going to, you know, meet someone. I'm going to fall in love. I'm going to start a family. I'm going to pay bills and all of the things that that make up life. And then writing has a way of coming back around. 
to to kind of find us. Uh, it, was it like that for you that that one day there was a, an epiphany moment, or was it just kind of this growing desire until you you know felt like you had to do something about it? Yeah, it was definitely more of the latter, definitely more of a growing desire. There was no epiphany moment because I think I wanted to be a writer since, you know, I could think in 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 complete sentences. So it was it was a growing desire. And you're right with life butts in and you have to pay the pill, bills and you have to feed your children. And there's so many more pressing, urgent, you know, front burner type things in life that writing feels like a luxury at times. It feels frivolous. It feels like you're really, um, you know, at the top of the rungs, if you can just sit down and write for an afternoon, especially if you have a job and kids. And so it's very difficult to actually make that time. But what I find is that if I don't make the time, then I feel like I'm not living a meaningful life because to me the way to find meaning in life is to is through words and is through expressing myself on paper and there are other people who express themselves verbally or in other ways and just for me this is the way I process life this is the way I understand life and so primarily my goal is to you know put put my thoughts in writing for myself to help me understand what's going on in my own life and other people's lives and, and also to help me empathize with other people's situations. And then secondarily, if I can share that with the world and if other people can get something out of that as well, then to me, that's like my highest calling here on earth, <laughs> not to get too deep, but to yeah. me, that is a life well lived. Like Oprah says, living your best life and, and um, yeah, I'm just, I'm very fortunate that I have the tools and the resources and the ability to be able to do what I love. Do I understand right, Tabitha, that you're also an attorney? Yes, I am also an attorney. Um, I practice on and off. I'm a tax attorney and I've done various other things as well, but um with my third child, I kind of took a little bit of time off and then I practiced on my own for a while. And right now I am back at a law firm. And so practicing law and writing at the same time, trying to raise kids, doing it all. <laughs> I, I've met uh, quite a number of uh, writers who were also attorneys or who used to practice law or, or people that still do. I, I know quite a few people that that practice law during the day and then, you know, write at night. And uh, there there seems to be an interesting intersection between uh, lawyers and writers that uh, and, and maybe that's an intersection that happens with a lot of careers that but for for some reason lawyers just tend to uh, to, to to stand out for whatever reason do you, do you see a connection between uh, you know, practicing law and and writing do you do you feel like that one feeds the other in any particular way that that makes that an interesting combination yes absolutely I mean, it's not a direct correlation, but I feel like if you're a good writer, you can be a good attorney, depending on what kind of law you practice. And I was always in my in the zone, as they say, in the creative zone, um, not only in writing creative work, but also in writing persuasive work and researching 
researching and writing briefs for clients, I feel like there's a direct correlation because in both cases, you're trying to tell a story. I mean, humans react to stories at a very basic level. And whether your audience is a reader who's curled up in a chair with a cup of tea and a good book, or your audience is a judge or you know, a, an appeals officer or whoever you're writing for, everybody wants a good story. So I feel like the attorneys who do well, especially in persuasive legal writing, are the ones who learn how to take a dry set of facts, or it could be dry, it could be very juicy, I guess, depending on the case, but sure. how to take that set of facts and turn it into, into a story with like a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you can connect with people on that level, no matter who your reader is, I think you'll be successful. So I am fortunate that I do have kind of innate writing skills. I've always been, I, I kind of firmly believe that people are either writers or they're speakers. And some fortunate people happen to be both, but I think that's rare and I'm much more of a writer. And so I'm fortunate that I'm able to sit down and it actually comes out in a way that people <laughs> connect with and identify with. So yeah, there's a big correlation there to get back to your original question with writing in law. And also, you know, the law, depending on what kind of law you you practice, as long as it's not patent law or something like that, which I find insanely boring, but <laughs> um, if it's some sort of law with some sort of interesting facts, then uh, you can, you know, you can mine material. So which like John Grisham has done and, and others. Right, right, yeah. And and, and I think he's going to be okay. I think he's going to make it. I, I think his career is on, on, on solid ground, finally. <laughs> I, I think he found that connection between law and writing that worked out for him. So. Yeah, I think he did. I think I think he's going to be okay. Um, Tabitha, we're recording this on September 21st, um, which is 10 days after the 20th anniversary of, of the September 11th tragedy that happened in New York and Washington and, and, and Pennsylvania. And, and uh, I remember the September the 11th, 2001. Um, I, I can tell you everything about that morning. It's, it's one of those moments that even though I lived across the country from, from what was happening uh, at the time and, and it didn't affect me in, in any tangible uh way that you know that i could draw a direct line to it 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 had a huge impact on on everyone in in this really interesting way uh this really unique way Mm -hmm. um what what were you doing that morning i had just taken the red eye flight from new york JFK to London. So I had just landed at like 7 a.m. London time. I had gotten into my hotel, checked in, had lunch. I had spoken to my husband that morning and I was at, um, I worked for a small company called Transact Tools. It was based in New York City and we had one colleague in our London office and I was sitting in our, you know, temporary office space um, working with him, with Ian Grubb. He was our colleague. And uh, I, I'm assuming, well, it would have been later in the afternoon, uh, local time in, in, in England, when uh, when everything started unfolding, I assume. Uh, did, did you guys see it in real time as it was unfolding? 
We did not. So it was about, it was almost two o'clock, I believe there. So we had, we had gone to lunch and just gone back to the office and we were tapping away at our computers and Ian got an email and he kind of sat back in his chair and I'll never forget the look on his face. It was one of like disbelief, but you know how when people are, are getting a piece of information that they can't quite believe and there's like a kind of ironic smile on their face and yeah yeah that like you like the, the emotions don't that you, you don't know what the proper emotion is or, or it's yeah it, it comes out in 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 weird ways yeah so it's like kind of a funny grin on his face and he leaned back and he said a plane's just flown into or a plane has just hit the world trade center and i looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? My husband works there. And and the look on his face went from, you know, that kind of surprised look to just like his smile just dropped. And from that moment on, it was, you know, I got up and I went and stood behind him and I watched as his emails came in and we tried to get on the internet. And of course, none of the internet sites were coming up um, because, you know, they were crashing. And I don't think that the internet was as redundant as it is now. I'm not sure if that would happen today or not, but I don't think it would. But we couldn't get, you know, we couldn't get anything to load. We couldn't get any information. So all the information we were getting was from our colleagues in New York who, who knows where they were getting their information. Maybe they had a TV in the office. Um, And so we did this for a while. I can't say how long, you know, it could have been 10 minutes. It could have been 30 minutes. And um, it's at one point, and I was trying to call my husband the whole time, trying to figure out where he was, and none of the calls were going through, nothing was going through, nothing was loading. It was very frustrating. And at one point, he got an email from our friend and colleague in New York City, and the email just simply said, WTC2 just collapsed. And it was so shocking, and none of us knew, I mean, neither one of us knew what to make of it. Because you get an email like that and you're like, that's impossible. That can't happen. How could a tower that's 110 stories tall, the tallest building in New York, how could it just collapse? So, of course, I'm starting to panic. And I said, I can't do this anymore. We have to go find a TV. And we went down onto the street and we walked until we found a pub and walked into this pub where people were smoking and drinking in the afternoon and found a TV and sat down and watched uh, along with the, the whole world as you know the the newscasters were at a loss for words everyone was at a loss for words i was desperately trying to get information about which um, building had collapsed and i i couldn't remember for certain this is terrible to admit which one of the buildings my husband worked in i had even been up there but i I just never had identified it as north or south before. It was just right, two right. towers. And so I was holding on to the hope that my husband was in the one that was still standing. And that was like, you know, I was I kind of very firmly convinced myself of that because I was certain that the the cell tower was on the top of his building. Um, and so I, I was doing OK until we watched that building go down. And so in this sense, my story is very similar to that of my protagonist, Erin, because she was in Mallorca on vacation with a friend. So it was a little bit different, but she also found a, 
a bar at the hotel to get news and watched Daniel's building go down. So, so that experience was personal to me. And at that point, I just, you know, became very nauseated. And there we are sitting in a pub with cigarette smoke. And you can imagine how that felt. I'm sure I turned green and sure. Ian kind of grabbed me and pulled me out of there. Um, I don't even know either one of us knew what to do at that point. But he, so we just walked back to my hotel and I don't even know how much longer this was. Like time is very fuzzy during events like this. And I remember bits and pieces of the walk back to my hotel, watching people cross the street, watching people on the phone, watching people go on with their life. Cause London wasn't, I'm sure everybody knew what was going on, but they weren't, you know, they weren't panicking yet. They did later. They weren't, um, you know, reacting as people in New York did, obviously. And it just felt so ordinary. And it felt like, how can all these people go on with their lives when like the Twin Towers just fell and my husband could be dead? It was it was a really surreal experience. And then we got back to the hotel and I somehow mustered up the courage to walk up to the front desk and ask if I had any messages. And uh, the, the woman at the front desk in her very lovely British accent said, oh yes, it's just arrived. She says, your husband is fine. And <laughs> obviously, I'll never forget I, that moment. I, I didn't realize I was holding my breath until just then. <laughs> Whew, it was quite a moment. And I think I kind of broke down a little bit in the lobby. And, and my colleague, Ian, grabbed the piece of paper and told her thank you. And um, and then after that, it was just a flurry of phone calls and, you know, trying to figure out what to do from there. But, yeah, that was it was quite an experience. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website. Developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates, PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. What Death Taught Tarrant by Derek McFadden. Life is a journey. So is the afterlife. At the end of his life, Terrence McDonald must discover its meaning or he'll be banned from the afterlife forever and his soul will cease to exist. 
Join Terrence and those who love him on a poignant and unforgettable journey through a life at once wonderful and harrowing. Learn what Terrence learned. See what Terrence sees. By this provocative story's end, readers may even learn a thing or two about themselves. See why people are saying things like, Derek McFadden writes with an insight you can match. If you like the works of Mitch Album, I think you'll find What Death Taught Terrence a worthy addition to your library and the reading of it, a life-affirming journey. I found this story immediately immersive and it stuck with me long after I finished. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden on sale now. So we, we could talk all day about what what your personal experience was and, and, and you know, the being separated from your husband and then, you know, the, the reconnection and all that. But um, as time went on and uh, the the events of that day got farther and farther in the in the rearview mirror, um, did how, well, first off, how long did you guys stay in New York after that? So we stayed. My oldest daughter was born there. She's 18 now and just started college. So that was in 2003. And then we moved back to Houston, which is where my husband was from. And I had gone to college in about, I think, uh, that fall of 2003. So we stayed two years after that. Wow. Um, As time goes on and, you know, uh, children are born and um, you know, jobs go on and, and you, you know, uh, building careers and, and all of that, um, you know, the, the events of that day fade a little into the past, but still have ways of, of lingering on and, and kind of becoming part of who you are in, in, in some strange and interesting ways. Um, at what point did it, come to you that you know i should really channel some of these feelings and and uh and and some of the the situations that i've personally lived through into um a story that i could share with others how how did that come about yeah so you're right it does you kind of have to go on with your life and you know we were i had just turned 30 my husband was a couple years younger than i and um you know you're right in the thick of it and we started having kids and you know, he started, he would tell his story occasionally to people, um, but not that often. But then, you know, as with, with a lot of events like this, like the events tend to recede in your memory, but like the weight of time gives them a patina. Is that how you say that word? Yeah. I'm not a pronouncer. I'm a, I'm a writer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It tends to give them a patina of like, wow, you know, you can't believe you went through that. Like that was a major part of history that we just we live through it as a very personal moment but has really um you know developed into something that and i think it was because it was such a turning point in our national psyche we could talk about that forever as well as well but so as far as your question um in september of 2015 my husband and i were in new york he was there for business and i was kind of tagging along and we um w- right before i left i had a like a noon flight or something we went to the 911 museum and memorial um right before that morning and 
it was right after it had opened. Well, within like a year after it had opened. And uh, of course that brought it all back, right? It brought it back all the feelings. It's such an audio visual experience. It was, I had never walked into a museum before where you heard the events as well as like read about them and saw, saw them. So that was very impactful. And we walked around that, you know, of course we went to the memorial, which we had been to before. And what really impacted me though, was turning a corner kind of in the back of the museum, you turn a corner and there's like an alcove with like warning signs and you have to kind of go around a, like a kind of privacy entrance um, with warning signs that the images could be disturbing. And it was images of the people who fell to their deaths. And it was, you know, the, the grainy images that yeah. we've all seen before, but it just struck me that the people who fell, they had like a double layer of tragedy. I mean, not that any, any death is a tragedy like that, but, but their stories particularly are so difficult to contemplate that we don't really go there. And there's so many stories of people who their loved ones could have been those who fell, but they refuse to acknowledge it. You know, there's the whole question of, is it volitional or is it not? So if you have, if you have like Catholic beliefs or other beliefs where suicide is a sin, your family members don't want to acknowledge that they might have taken their own lives, which I don't even consider it taking their own life because they didn't have a choice. Right. But it just seems so sad to me that these people who, who met such a horrible death are not even acknowledged. Some of them, their identities are not even known. You have to go behind a, a warrant, you know, an, into an alcove with warning signs to even read about them. And it just, it just seemed so sad and impactful. And there's just not a light, a lot of light shed on their stories. And so as a writer, I decided I was going to delve into that myself. And I got to the airport right after that visit and sat down after going through security. I sat down at the gate and just started typing out Daniel's story, which is the prologue. When when I first got the book and then started, you know, kind of digging into uh, to your story and, and you know, some of the genesis of, of this project that that I could, you know, the things that I could gather ahead of time and, and realized your personal connection to the events of that day. Um, one one of the first questions that I kind of had for myself was, I wonder what motivated Tabitha to write um, this fictional story that is absolutely informed by uh, your personal experiences, as opposed to uh, a memoir account of you and your husband's experiences. Uh, did 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 that thought ever occur to you, or um, and if so, what what was some of the the um, the thought process thought processes that that you went through to you know decide how to handle the the material and the way to tell the story. Right. I get that question a lot. And first of all, as a writer, I feel like the stories kind of call to me rather than than me going out and, and finding them or it's not so much a decision as it is a constant pull <laughs> yeah. um, on on my thoughts constantly go back there. And so when I 
have a topic that I need to write about, I know it kind of deep in my bones. And it never, our story never seemed that remarkable to me. I mean, tens, maybe 10,000 people got out of the towers those day, that day. I don't remember the exact number, but everybody has their own story. And every, as you remember every moment of that morning, everybody has a 9-11 story. Everybody has their own 9-11 story. And even though my husband was very close to the, what I call the bright line on the North Tower between those who died and those who didn't, he... Yes, his story is very remarkable, but it didn't really happen to me. So for me to write as a memoir just felt a little distant. And I, I just honestly, there, I wanted to write it more as a what if, because there was that moment in London. Well, there were the, you know, the two hours where I didn't know if he had made it or not. And in hindsight, even the message I got from the front desk could have been a, hey, I'm in the tower, I'm fine after, after the plane hit and then he could have come down there were there were moments in his descent and when he was under the tunnels when world trade center 2 came down there were moments where his life was still very much at risk and so you know it could have been a false assurance um and and i thought what if i hadn't heard from him what would i have done just like logistically physically i was in london I, there were no planes flying i couldn't have just driven home as a lot of people did um, I would have been stuck in London with no way to get back with, you know, one colleague that I didn't know that well. And just my husband just is missing and presumed dead. And that to me, I, my thought was I would have had to have been put into a mental institution. So I think it was that thought which intrigued me. What would I have done combined with these stories of the people who fell to their deaths and how what the circumstances must have been like for them to choose that or or to have that happen to them um that was much more compelling to me than than our own personal story yeah. plus i'm just a fiction writer at this point i might write a <laughs> memoir one day but right now it's fiction <laughs> well, and, and there's no uh you know there's no judgment there whatsoever um i, I just find it interesting what uh, you know, for someone to have such a close connection to it, what um, and and I love the the uh, the explanation that you had about you know you played the what if game, and um, I I like uh, or we have a lot of uh, thriller writers on the show and a lot of crime fiction writers and um, and I, I jokingly say to um, to a lot of them that you know crime writers are some of the nicest people that you would ever meet in your life and uh to for people to write such horrible things on paper you know but there's and and you know the question is you know why do we love these kinds of stories and and i think it has something to do with being able to to live out those fears uh from the safety of our reading chair and uh to to know that we're we're safe and sound um but allow our our minds to kind of mine those those deep dark places, and it, mm -hmm. was it kind of like that in in writing this book? To you know you you're okay, your husband's okay, um, you know physically, um, but was it? And and I think you you kind of alluded to this to to allow you to just you know what what would I have done? And and so then, um, your protagonist Aaron O'Connor, um you know, to, to put her through those things from the safety of your writing desk, um, had to be a profound experience in a lot of ways. 
Yes, it is. I remember when I first set out to be a writer and I would hear, you know, teachers and other writing, other writers say that you really have to throw a lot of, I don't know if you can say bad words on your podcast, Go podcast ahead. but <laughs> shit, you have to throw a lot of shit at your characters. <laughs> right. And you love these characters. They're like your children and you don't want bad things to happen to them. And I was very much that way. I was very much always just an optimistic Pollyanna person. I don't want to think about bad things happening to good people anymore than anyone else. And But in order to be a writer, you kind of have to do that. And I thought I would never be get any good at it. I thought my stories would all just be sunshine and roses. So I think I went the opposite direction a little bit with this one. And yeah, I just really needed to delve there. I just really needed to figure out what that would have felt like on, for both of them. Like how different, how different my husband's and my story stories could have been if he had just been six stories higher in the building. To me, it's such an arbitrary line. It's such an arbitrary moment. And how your stories could diverge so widely to me that's that's yeah that's the that's why I write is to process that what was uh, what was your husband's reaction to this idea that you had for this book uh, and and how how deep into it were you before you started sharing with him what what it was that that you were working on he he's very supportive so he you know thought it was great. I think he doesn't think about my writing a lot, probably because I keep it pretty secret. I'm, I'm afraid, like I, I view it as like a little baby bird and, you know, you have to protect your little baby bird until it's ready to be launched into the world and, and fend for itself. And so I'm very careful about who I show my writing to. Um, and he, I probably didn't tell him about it until maybe I had been writing it for a year or two. And I really wanted him to, well, probably, I'm sorry, I take that back. Probably about six months, probably about halfway into writing it. Cause it took me a year to write the first draft. And I wanted him to read the prologue because I wanted him to validate its authenticity just from the standpoint of someone who had been in the building and worked in the building. And is that all, accurate like what kinds of things can you see from up here like is this normal you know that sort of thing and so his reaction he still hasn't read the full book but I think he's I think he's proud of me and we've done a few events together where he'll talk about his experience and I'll do a reading um so you know and, and he got a lot of attention he talks a lot about his experience and got a lot of attention um, around the 20th anniversary and was always trying to slip in my book whenever he could. So he's very supportive. <laughs> when, how long did it take you to write the book? So it was kind of a long winding journey and I'll spare you most of the details. It's kind of a sad story <laughs> in terms of like getting an agent and losing an agent. But I started writing it actually NaNoWriMo of 2000. 15, which was a couple months. Well, I guess I started writing it technically after that trip to the museum, but then I kind of set it aside and finished another book I was working on and started writing it NaNoWriMo of 2015. And that knocked a good chunk of it out. And then I finished it probably in about May of 2016. But as early readers will attest, it was not quite ready for prime time yet. So I went through a few revisions and then I, I was selected for Pitch Wars in 2016. And my men mentor was Laura Heffernan, who's fabulous, who also blurred my book. And 
so we polished it up and got ready, got it ready. And it went out and I got an agent in March of 2017 and she loved it, loved my writing, but she wanted me to bigger the book. She thought it was too small. And so I spent a year rewriting it and it took out about half of it. And I, I brought in a new character who is a 911 dispatcher and I inter I kind of retro retrofit their stories and interwove them and spent a lot of time on this. And then for, well, the agent left her agency and, and contractually couldn't take me with her, but I think also it just wasn't a really great fit anyway. And so then I was left with this book. I'd basically re rewritten for this agent and, I just had a revelation. I did have a revelatory moment about the book one night lying in the bathtub that I needed to take it back to to Aaron's story. I needed to take out this new character, even though I love this new character, Rosie, and she she now has a book all her own, which I'm I will publish next. And I took it back to the studs, so to speak, and made it Aaron's story again. So all in all, from I started in September 2015, and it was published in September of 2021. So a six-year journey altogether to publication. As the um, uh, the, the publication date being this close to the 20th anniversary, obviously um, is um, fortuitous uh, for the story. Um, as it got closer to that anniversary, did you did you feel uh, you know any any uh, heightened, um, you know, stress or, or, or worry uh, around, you know, bringing a, a, a story this impactful uh, around such an impactful anniversary? Absolutely. That was foremost on my mind and also my publisher's mind. We wanted to make sure that well, in, in my my only intent in writing the book was to understand what the victims and their families went through and to honor their experience. And, and I knew that from the moment I wrote it, that that was my intent. So I wasn't really concerned that it would be perceived with any other intent. Um, but you never know how your work is going to be received and, and it's impossible to read your own work as a writer would. And so, yeah, there was definitely we, we definitely wanted the people who were actually directly impacted by 9-11 to um, to feel like it was an authentic story that that honored their experiences. And I hope that we achieved that. That said, I don't think they were in my, my intended audience. My intended audience were people who there's a lot of intense interest around 9-11, and I know this being married to a survivor, that there's a lot of interest in what it was like to be in the building, what it was like to go through that experience. And my intent was to kind of give people who weren't involved with the event a little peek into what that was like. But yeah, that was definitely foremost on our minds in publishing the book. There's a, I, I think there's a lot of stories about, you know, what the wallpaper looked like uh, on the inside of the Twin Towers um, and, and not so many um, that I've seen of the, the impact of the, the people that were, that were attached to the event, but not in the building, uh, so to speak. And, yeah. and that's what, you know, you definitely give us that perspective. What was it like to be, 
you know, someone so closely connected to the events and the people involved, um, you know, what was that experience like? And, and it, it is a, it, it is a one in a million look at that. And, uh, I love it so much. Um, thank you. Tabitha, after, after writing and publishing, um, you know, such a, uh, a, a momentous book that that means you know it's just wrapped up in so much meaning for so many people um you know you you talked about uh, you know uh, other projects that you are working on that that'll be coming out um how do you follow up a book like this and, and what's the the thought process like for you who is a writer and, and you obviously there are more stories than than this you know singular event that that affect your life and and you know that you want to talk about how, how do you uh, move on to the next project after something like this? Yeah, it's difficult. My mind has definitely been in, in you know, editing, revising, marketing, PR mode for a while. So I, I wonder sure. if I ever can write another book. And I know a lot of writers have this, you know, if you're not doing it daily, it, you, you think I'll never be able to do that again. But like I alluded to in, uh, in the story of how long it took me to write the book, I did... I wrote all of these chapters through the perspective of another person named Rosie, who is that she's actually the 911 dispatcher who gets Daniel's call when he's in the tower. So she shows up in the prologue and she also shows up in a scene with Aaron when Aaron is down at ground zero, zero, trying to, trying to find Daniel, trying to find any trace of him, just wandering around the site. And she has a, kind of a run-in with, not a run-in, but like she she jumps out into the road when a fire truck is driving by with, um, with one of the deceased firefighters. And the driver of that truck is Rosie, although you won't know that as the reader because I don't ever say it because you're, uh, you're viewing it through Aaron's viewpoint. So anyway, that's Rosie. She's, she was such a vivid character in my mind that I thought she deserved her own book. And that one I've already written. It's 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 a story about Rosie and her mother who died when she was 10. And it, it alternates between Rosie's viewpoint. And this is all set in the year 2000. So just before 9-11. And then that of her mother, Mary, who is a Welsh housewife who wanted to, who had dreams of being a glamorous singer and instead got married, got pregnant, got married, thought she was moving to New York City, ended up in Staten Island, stuck with an abusive husband and two kids. So it's kind of like 70s housewife angst mixed with Rosie's failure to launch because her mother um, committed suicide when she was 10 and she feels like abandoned her. So it's like an interwoven braided story of mother-daughter story. So it's very different. And Actually, Paper Airplanes is probably not something I'll ever write again. I'll probably never write something similar to that again. I think it was born so out of my personal experience and that of my husband's that but it's not typically the topics I gravitate to when I'm just writing fiction. So and I'm very much just I write what I need to write. I write what I write what I'm called to write. I, I listen to my instinct on that. And so I never know what I'm going to write from one moment to the next. All my stuff is going to be very different. I think the common theme will be women who women who empower themselves in some way. So but I don't I try not to limit myself to to what I can and can't write. Absolutely. I think that's a great rule uh, <laughs> to live by. 
paper airplanes is available everywhere now you can grab it in paperback or kindle edition however you like to read uh, there's going to be links to it in the show notes of this episode tabitha if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do where can they connect with you online Yep, they can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Those are the three platforms I'm on the most. And they can check out my website to get links to all of those, which is TabithaForney.com. We'll put links to that in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. Tabitha, I love the book, and uh, we're recommending it to everyone. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank. I really appreciate it and love talking to you. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. I'm melting! I'm melting! cried Joey. Take the picture already! He stood with one arm around the bronze waist of the bewitched tribute statue, Samantha Stevens, riding a broom across a crescent moon. Jason tried in vain to frame the shot without any tourists in it, but that was impossible. From all points of the compass, a merry horde had arrived for Salem's two-day summer psychic fair. All the commuter trains had burst open, like cornucopias filled beyond capacity, spilling endless fruits and nuts onto the red brick sidewalks of Essex Street. A vampiress in lavender shorts and feathered boots sold maple chocolate walnut fudge in front of the Witch City Tattoo Parlor. A near-naked gypsy in purple-green veils danced with a pheasant in her arms around a plug-in Hanukkah menorah. A fat man in a fetching blue jeans dress sold amethyst and citrine charm bracelets in front of Medusa Cafe, but his stand got knocked over by a one-armed crone driving a mobility scooter who sang, Choo-choo! as she passed, her stump on the wheel, her lipstick ghastly, her gnarled right hand raised in trailing plumes of noxious cigarette smoke. Chewbacca leapt out of her way and slapped sparks from his fur. He gave a disgruntled growl before going back to playing summer lovin' on his ukulele. The old one-armed dervish drove off, choo-choo, parting a crowd of wanderers, slack-jawed tourists with camera straps tight across their bellies, yellow-vested police on segways, elderly rollerbladers, face-painted infants and harried parents, and college girls. So many hot, hysterical college girls that you'd think somebody had napalmed a sorority house. Jason, are you deaf? Sorry. Jason raised the phone and took the shot. Joey inspected the photo and nodded in approval. Your turn. No, thanks. Do it, Shaggy. Don't make me hex you. Jason gave in and traded places. He put an arm around Samantha's metal back. Her bronze body had flushed in the afternoon sun, Warm through his glove, but her eyes were weary. No, downright creepy. And her smile was forced, like a Disneyland princess who'd had her toe stomped. Say chowder, cried Joey, who'd been practicing his New England accent all morning. Come on, man. Say chowder. Fine, chowder. Joey got the shot and Jason surrendered Samantha to a chubby kid wearing a Gandalf beard who climbed up to worship her bronze bosom.